Even as we worship this morning, and even as I preach now to you, Vladimir Putin's rockets and missiles are raining hellfire in Ukraine. There is a land war going on as we speak. Uh, Whatever we think about that land war, that is a reality of nations and kingdoms, of of lawful governments and tyrants and dictators. And as we study history, we've, history is nothing, isn't much more than the, uh, the history of conquest for land and nations and peoples and who has dominance and who has the right to the land, who, who has the right to make the laws of the land, who has a right to live within the land. You know, as I, as I look out and think about our own congregation, a number of you come from war-torn lands, uh, places where uh, whole countries have been torn apart or annexed or um, wiped off the geopolitical grid because of uh, one power or another. You know, we, we can go even back from not just things today, um, and not just the, the Russian conflict over places like Chechnya and Georgia and, and Ukraine, but we can go back and we can think about, for example, British colonialism, right or wrong. Did, did the British Empire have the right to take the lands that they took? We can think about um, those that came to what would later become America. Did they have the right to take the land from the Native Americans and and so forth. So all of, when we when we think about land conquest, it, it comes to the issue of ethics. Who who has the right to the land? Who has the right to the laws? Who have the right to dwell in the land? And of course I'm not going to answer all of those questions and that's not my job as a minister. But what we come to today in Joshua is a holy war. It's a land conquest. Uh, there's going to be a lot of blood involved and bloodshed, and lands can be taken from one group of people from another. So was that right? Was that just? Was that holy? What, what makes them different from, say, Islamic jihadists who want to institute an Islamic state, Islamic state you know, in the Middle East or, or beyond? Well, we come to uh, Joshua and we wrestle with these questions. And when we look at Joshua and we see the land conquest, we see the blood that was shed, it leads critics of the Bible to want to call God a moral monster. And so we'll wrestle a little bit with the justice of holy war in, in Joshua today as we wrestle with its message, how the New Testament views it, and we get to questions of who does own the land ultimately? Who does? Is it just the first person who happened to be there? Because honestly, when you look even at the history of peoples, even the peoples that were in the land before the modern nations, they were all fighting and warring and stealing land from each other as well. So who really gets to own the land. We're going to talk about that today, both in respect to the land of Canaan as well as the universe. 
If you turn to page 7 of your worship folder, you can see the melodic line as I've written it this week for Joshua, and and you can follow along there. I'll read it to you. Uh, Joshua describes Israel's just and holy war for the promised land. Israel is coming into their divine inheritance in the land of Canaan, a land which God promised to them in the days of Abraham. The conquest will be bloody, and there will be many lessons learned along the way. As we consider this book in light of the New Testament, Joshua gives us three powerful lessons on just and holy war today. One, our battle is spiritual, not physical. Two, our land inheritance must come from heaven. And three, Yahweh holds the exclusive claim to the universe, its laws, and who has the right to dwell therein. And while the sword that Christians wield is the word of God, the call to faith, courage, and complete household allegiance remains unchanged. May we say with Joshua, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so this melodic line will also form the structure of the sermon Today, first, we will look at the just and holy war as it is rightly described in Joshua. And then we will look at how the New Testament views it in light of the holy war that we are called to participate in as Christians. But we need to know what that looks like because uh, history has shown many times where the church has mixed up uh, and confused what it thought was its holy war and done horrible things that God did not call the church to do at this time. So we need to rightly understand what just and holy war looks like for Christians today and what land are we seeking to take back as well. We're going to need to wrestle with all of this this morning. As far as the way that Joshua is broken down in the structure, um, I agree with the scholars like uh, V. Phillips Long who argue for a structure based on an alliteration of four words. There's four Hebrew words that rhyme with each other, and they actually form the four major sections of Joshua. And you can see that in page 7 of the worship folder as well. The words are abar, lakak, kalak, and abad. And so you kind of have a chiastic or envelope structure with these four words, which mean cross, take, divide and serve. Cross, take, divide and serve. So we will, uh, we will follow that outline today. So let's begin with our first point that Joshua describes Israel's just and holy war for the promised land. Joshua describes Israel's just and holy war for the promised land. Joshua opens up in the first section, chapters 1 to 5, with the call to cross into the land. And now remember, Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus, all the way back to Genesis, the whole Pentateuch, what we've gone through so far in this walk through the Bible series, forms the the background or the backdrop for Israel now about to go into the land. Remember in Genesis 12, God called Abram from the nations. And God told Abram that he would 
give him a name and that he would bless him and that uh, he, through him all the families of the earth would be blessed and those who blessed Abraham would be blessed and those who cursed Abraham would be cursed. And then in chapter 15, God promises Abraham a, a land. He promises him a land. And it's a land that's filled with the Amorites. But what God tells Abraham in Genesis 15 is that the cup of the Amorites is not yet full. The cup of their iniquity and of their sin. So God's allowing these wicked nations to live in this land. And it would be over 400 years till Abraham's people would be able to go into the land. And you know in, uh, in recent days we've been walking through the Pentateuch and we saw how a whole generation that was delivered out of Egypt failed to enter the land because of their hard hearts and their unbelief and continual groaning. But then as we came to the end of Numbers, that whole generation died. The new generation was getting ready to go into the land. And then in Deuteronomy, they renew the covenant with Yahweh. And then they find themselves on the banks of the Jordan, ready to enter the land. And so Joshua now continues that narrative that we have read in the first five books of the Old Testament. And they are on the doorstep, now ready to go into the land. And in this first section of Joshua with his call to cross, the Israelites are given some very important teachings and they're, they're doing some very important things to prepare them to be ready to go into the land. And the first thing that God does is he gives a call to faith. He gives a call to faith and a call to fidelity to the word of God. A call to faith and a call to fidelity in the word of, to the word of God. And I want to read the first nine verses of Joshua to you. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then 
you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so we see at the outset of this, of this battle, the call to faith is there. Be strong and courageous. Strength and courage, that is nothing less than faith. You can't be strong and courageous without faith. And notice that the Lord tells Joshua that three times. Be strong and courageous. I will be with you. And moreover, related to that faith is also the call to fidelity in the word of God. He says, Don't, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. You shall not go to the right or to the left of it. When we talk about the regulative principle as Christians today, of we worship by the word of God, it's the same principle. We're not to go to the right or to the left of it. We're not supposed to make up man-made versions of worship or man-made rituals, we are to stay pure and faithful to the word of God. And then God promises to be with his people. And so this is the commission, call to faith and a call to fidelity. That is what needs. Notice that Yahweh does not tell Joshua, you need to get some tanks and you need to get some javelin missiles for those tanks that the other side has. He's not saying you need machine guns or nuclear capability. This army is outfitted by faith and by fidelity to the word of God. And if they do those two things, they will be successful in the conquest That's the most important thing they need to know before they cross into the land. After this, as we move to chapter 2, spies are sent into Jericho on the other side of the Jordan. And uh, we get this beautiful picture of Gentile salvation. Because as we know, the Israelites are going to go in and they've been called to kill every living thing. Every living thing. Man, woman, and child. Is there any hope for pagans then? And we see this beautiful picture of Gentile salvation when Rahab the prostitute hides the spies from the civil rulers or the police or whatever they had there in Jericho. And they are promised salvation or promised deliverance when the walls would come tumbling down. A beautiful picture of Gentile salvation. After that, Israel crosses the Jordan and they uh, have a very, they do two very important things after they cross. They circumcise the new generation because the new generation had not yet been circumcised. And remember, when Moses didn't circumcise his children, God just about struck him down and his family. And so they took flint knives and circumcised the children, because that's the visible sign that they are the people of God. So the whole generation was circumcised there in the land, and then they celebrated the Passover. 
we see these beautiful, the two, the two Old Testament sacraments that have their parallels also in the New Testament. We see circumcision and Passover celebrated. They are centered in God's redemptive plan, his covenant promises, and the hope that he will continue to redeem them from the nations that seek their ruin. And then after that, this section concludes with the arrival of the commander of the Lord's army. And I want to read uh, that to you in chapter 5. In chapter 5, note that this didn't happen after, or this didn't happen before the Israelites took the step of faith to cross the Jordan, to watch those waters be parted. But after they took the step of faith, and entered the land, the Lord shows up and makes good on his promise. And in Joshua five thirteen and following, we read, When Joshua was, was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. And I love, I love that picture that we have there when Joshua says, are you for us or for, for those guys? And, and he says, neither. And what a wonderful reminder that the Lord does not work for his people. We work for him. The Lord works, uh, the Lord's people work for the Lord. The Lord does not work on our behalf. It's not our army in the same way that today it's not our church. It's the Lord's church. And we just happen to be a part of it. And so the Israelites in this first section are fully outfitted with faith to be strong and courageous, with the call to remain faithful to the word of God. They crossed the Jordan. They celebrated the sacraments of circumcision and Passover. And then God himself shows up. What else do they need for the battle? So we come into the next section of Joshua, the call to take the land. And we come to the fall of Jericho, which I read in our scripture reading this morning. And I want to just point out one, one point there. In Israel's holy war for the land, they were called to, the Hebrew word is harem. It means the ban. They were to put the ban on all the peoples that lived in the land of Canaan, meaning they were to kill every man and woman and child. Every living thing was to be devoted to destruction. That's the ESV translates the word harem, devote to destruction. In this this call, we see in in chapter 6, verse 17, uh, when, uh, when Joshua says, And the city... And all that is within it shall be devoted 
to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and her family will be saved from those in Jericho. And this actually alludes back to what uh, was commanded for the laws concerning warfare in Deuteronomy 19 and excuse me in Deuteronomy 20. The Israelites were to show mercy to those that pleaded for mercy outside of the land of Canaan. Uh, and they could put them into forced labor uh, and come into a, a treaty of that kind. But for those that were in the land, we read in Deuteronomy twenty sixteen to 18, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. The Lord knows that if any sinful people and pagan practices remain in the land, they will lead the Israelites astray to follow those practices. And of course, we know that over the course of time, that very thing happens that very thing happens and the Israelites will be led away to, for example, sacrifice their babies to the God of Moloch to seek prosperity and uh, to practice every kind of abominable uh, sexual sin that the pagans practiced. All of those things will happen if they don't rid the land of every man, woman, and child of those pagan nations. And so they are to put the ban, the harem, devote to destruction all that they find. And as we, as we know from the archaeological record, uh, there is great evidence for, this, uh, for that these things did happen. Jericho is, uh, there's a very well-known documented layer of rubble and on top of that fire and char. Um, Secular archaeologists try to place it at a different date. Actually, they try to change Israel's timeline so they can say, well, that wasn't the Israelites. But there is um, well-known archaeology to support the conquest of the land. Uh, Another interesting uh, thing that um, is found, too, is that there are Um, footprints around altars. There's like a giant shape of a foot around an altar in various parts of Israel and the Transjordan, which uh, scholars believe goes back to God's promise in Joshua 1 that wherever your foot will tread, I will give you that land. And uh, so we have wonderful archaeological evidence for that as well. But Israel's called to do something I think most of us with modern sensibilities feel a little bit uneasy about, this idea of killing every man, woman, and child. But I think what that does is it, is it really highlights how much we minimize sin and how much we minimize the effect of sin over generations. Uh, and we're going to need to deal with that when we come to the New Testament as well, this idea of total destruction of sin and sinners.
But at any rate, through chapter 6, the Israelites experience their first victory in the land. They finally have a foothold in the promised land. And you would think that after that, it's going to keep getting better and better. But in chapter 7, they fail miserably. And it turns out that a man named Achan had kept part of the spoils uh, for himself, the things that were to be devoted to destruction. And the Israelites were defeated at the battle of Ai. And they have to go through this horribly painful process of figuring out who it was that kept something that was supposed to be devoted to the Lord. And it turned out to be Achan. And he and his whole family were stoned to death because of it. And all his possessions were burned. So he himself was devoted to destruction. And at that time, after that painful experience in the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble, they have a covenant renewal ceremony where they renew the covenant. And in, uh, if you remember in Deuteronomy, when the Israelites were, were called to have half the tribe stand before Mount Ebal and half the tribe stand before Mount Gerizim, they had this covenant ceremony where the curses were pronounced and the blessings were pronounced and they renewed fellowship with the Lord after this terrible tragedy. And on another very interesting archaeological note that they have very recently discovered a, an amulet, a lead amulet from the time of the conquest that has the, the curse written inside of it. It's just amazing. And they used, tech, they used uh, I don't know what kind of technology they used because they could scan within the layers of the lead without opening it up to read. And there we have the name of Yahweh mentioned twice. We have the warning of the curse in this little amulet and it dates to the time of the conquest, which is mind-blowing because secular scholars have tried for a long time to say that the Old Testament was written really late and it was kind of made up long after the fact and that the early Israelites couldn't read and couldn't write and there's no way that Moses or Joshua could write these early Old Testament books. And, but all of that has been defunct by hundreds and hundreds of years by this discovery. It's really amazing. And they found this lead amulet at what is now understood or called to be Joshua's altar in Shechem, in this area where they had this, this uh, renewal service. There is there's, uh, now a, a more elaborate altar that they have discovered, but underneath it is a small circular altar that dates back to the time of the conquest. And so um, we don't need archaeology for faith, and you can't convince somebody to have faith because of archaeology, but it is pretty amazing that these very things that we're reading about are being proven true in their time, even by the archaeological record today. So if you want to read more about it's very cool. If you want to read more about that, I can send you a link to an, an article that I've read recently on it. So anyways, as we conclude this second section, the Israelites do take the land. There's more battles. Um, there's a summary of the conquest and defeated kings. And then after that time, it's now uh, the Lord calls them to divide the land. And in chapter 13, we read about the Lord's promise. 
and the eastern inheritance. And then God calls Joshua to divide the land of Canaan proper to the nine and a half tribes that are staying within the land. And so those lands are dispersed. The cities of refuge and Levitical cities and pasture lands are dispersed by lot. And in chapter 21, we are given a summary that the Lord kept his promise to Israel. And I'll just read that those concluding verses in Joshua 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And there were still parts of the land to be um, still taken, and that wouldn't fully happen until the days of David uh, conquering the Philistines. But God had promised um, and came, made good on his promise to give the Israelites their fu- the full land in their full possession therein. The land was divided, and it was a time of rejoicing for Israel. So then Joshua concludes with a call to serve. The word serve happens time and time again. Serve the Lord, don't serve the gods of the surrounding nations. Joshua gives them that warning in chapter 22 as the eastern tribes return home. He gives that same warning in chapter 23 when Joshua is about to die and he calls all of Israel together and calls them to remain faithful to the Lord, to serve him and to not serve the gods of the surrounding nations. And then finally in chapter 24, as Joshua comes to the end, they renew the covenant once again at Shechem. And some of the most famous words of the Old Testament are uttered there. And I want to read 24 verses 14 and 15. Joshua says in this covenant renewal ceremony, and he really, he echoes Deuteronomy. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And even here we see echoes that it's not all going as it should be going. There, There's a, a, a discord here at the end when he has to tell them, put away the gods that your father served before the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the same thing that we utter as covenant families today when we, when we baptize our children and come together in membership. We're saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
And then in the concluding verses of Joshua, patriarchal history comes to an end. Joshua dies. The bones of Joseph, which were brought up from Egypt, are buried in the land. And Aaron, the priest, his son Eliezer dies and is buried. And patriarchal history comes to a close with Joshua. So that is the just and holy war we find in Joshua. And of course, I would encourage you to read it and study it. And this sermon's just meant to give you an overview of it. But now in these concluding minutes, I want to reflect on how the New Testament views our just and holy war today. And to give you something to go out with and maybe help you better understand your role and our role as a church today in what is still a holy war that we are called to. And so I'm going to give you uh, just three brief things and then a final exhortation. One, our battle is spiritual, not physical. Our battle is spiritual, not physical. When Jesus was before Pilate, when Jesus was being examined and was about to be crucified, Jesus answered Pilate in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. The ultimate kingdom, even of which the land of Canaan was pointing to, was not the end. It was pointing to a spiritual kingdom that cannot be measured by geopolitical boundaries on earth. And in that way, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus recognizes that same spiritual reality, even as he said before Pilate, by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Paul picks up this idea of a spiritual mission in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we don't go out with the sword today killing people that don't agree with us. That is where actually Norway made kind of a bad mistake under uh, Olav, I believe, who basically said, convert or die. So he went around like, if, if you don't convert, we're cutting your head off. We're killing off your families. That's not the way the church is supposed to be bringing the kingdom of God on earth. The way the church brings the kingdom of God on earth is by the proclamation of the gospel. It's by the proclamation of the gospel. And our mission is not to take over a particular land, but to make disciples of all nations. To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that the Lord has commanded. And so ultimately our battle is not against the kings of this earth or against 
businesses or wicked tyrants, although the devil can use such people to bring evil on the earth. But our ultimate battle is against the enemy and his minions. But it's a spiritual battle, not a physical one. Secondly, our land inheritance must come from heaven. Our land inheritance must come from heaven. You know, the crusaders messed up when they thought that God was calling them to go back to Jerusalem to deliver it from the Muslims and to kill, kill everyone in their way. The crusaders got it all wrong. That was not their battle. It was not their spiritual call to why the sword shed blood on the earth. And if they only read their Bibles, a lot could have been a lot of hardship could have been prevented. We read in Hebrews 11 about the Old Testament saints who were going into the land of Canaan. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. In other words, if if the land of Canaan was the ultimate, they would have had opportunity to go back to there. But the writer of Hebrews says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So our homeland is in heaven. Our city is in heaven. And even God's Old Testament saints, who had this very physical picture of a land of promise and a land of rest and a physical land of Canaan, knew, according to the writer of Hebrews, that that wasn't the end goal. That wasn't the end game. That was simply pointing them to the greater reality of the heavenly city that would come in the fullness of time. And so we cause ourselves a lot of hardship when we grieve over the fact that Norway isn't as much like heaven as we want it to be, or America, or, uh, or Russia, or Chechnya, or Egypt, or wherever you come from, Poland, Estonia, Sri Lanka, Australia, It's not going to be heaven. That doesn't mean we can't be witnesses for the truth and and seek the common good. But those places are not heaven. And we cause a lot of sorrow when we put our hope and stock in the state of things now. Fix our eyes on things on earth rather than things that are in heaven. Our land inheritance, and we are given a land inheritance, friends, even more real than the Israelites, but that will come from heaven and it's not yet found on earth. Number three, that Yahweh holds the exclusive claim to the universe, its laws, and who has the right to dwell therein. 
The reason Israel's war in the land of Canaan is just and holy, the reason that that is different from what a Putin or an Islamic state or any other tyrant or dictator, the British Commonwealth or uh, the United States or anything else, the reason that that is different is because Yahweh owns the universe. He owns the universe. He has the right to determine its laws and who has the right to dwell therein. And in fact, we see nations rise and fall to the degree that they follow Yahweh in his rules and his laws. Exodus 9.29, Moses said, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. This is during the plagues. Moses talking to Pharaoh. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So don't get me wrong. When I say that the kingdom is not of this world, that does not mean that the earth does not belong to the Lord. And one day this earth will be redeemed and purged of all evil. Revelation 18, 1-5, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquity. And the whore of Babylon becomes the picture for all of the pagan nations that will be destroyed at the end of days. And as we read about in Revelation 19, when our Lord comes back and destroys every enemy, and of whom everyone not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. So the harem, the ban, the total destruction that we read about in, Deuteron- or in Joshua and Deuteronomy is nothing more than a small picture of the total ban that will be wrought upon the earth to remove from the earth every evil person for all time in heaven and on earth. And they will burn in the lake of fire forever. And if we don't understand the justice in that, then we don't understand sin. And we don't understand the severity of the battle that we are in. So I just want to conclude then with a call to faith, my friends. While we don't wield a physical sword, our sword is the word of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. This is the means by which we fight, proclaiming the word. The call to faith, the call to courage and complete household allegiance remains unchanged. And so may we say with Joshua, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, we've got more kids coming. More kids are coming, are being born. May we say together 
as families, as individuals, and as a church, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what's the promise in that? It's the same promise that God made to Joshua, and I will be with you. And as we're sent out to do the Great Commission, how does Jesus end the promise? And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. The writer of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Quoting Joshua. Jesus is with us always. So as we find ourselves in 2022 as a church plant in Stavanger, seeking to grow and seeking to do battle for the Lord through the gospel, making disciples of all nations. May we do that. May we not turn to the right or the left of his word, but may we never forget the promise that God is with us. God is with us in this just and holy spiritual war. And when our Lord returns, the true land inheritance will come. We will dwell in his new creation world without end, amen, before his face and before one another, without sin and without sorrow. So until that day, friends, may we be strong and courageous in faith, not swerving from the word of God and encouraging each other with the true and real hope that God is with us always. Amen.